Let's pray as we turn our attention to God's Word. Father, we thank you for this time uh, that we can be together. We want to pray for Nancy and the helpers who are teaching the children right now. We thank you for the gift that every child is in our life. And we pray that you would use this time in their lives, Lord Jesus, nurturing in them a love for you, a trust in your grace and an eternal perspective. And Father, we pray for us as we look into your word that you, that you would speak to us, that we would have an encounter with you, that we would uh, experience this morning the, the, the truth that you are alive and that this is your word and it is living and active. So speak into our hearts. Touch us, we pray. To that end, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd guide me as I share with these, your beloved people. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. I remember the day it happened. Uh, we, we actually had a foster daughter living with us at the time, so there were four kids, Lori and our three boys. And uh, downstairs in one of our basement rooms, in, in what was our guest room, they were drawing all over the walls. It, it may be worse than you're imagining. They weren't drawing with pencils or crayons. They were using permanent black Sharpies. And there were four of them. It, it, was, it was everywhere. Now, I, I imagine what's going on in your minds right now is one of two things. Either you are imagining, imagining what I look like when, when I lose my mind, or perhaps some of you, particularly those of you who are parents of younger children right now, you are imagining how you might react should that be in your future. I'll let you just imagine for a moment. Normally that would cause me to go apoplectic, like I would, I would lose it. But I didn't on that day. And I didn't, be, it wasn't because that day was a particularly uh, gracious day for me, a day where God supernaturally blessed me with patience that generally is not one of my greatest qualities. No, it was because I was about to tear that room down. The, the walls that they were drawing on was, 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 were walls that were going to be ripped down. I, 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 in fact, had invited them to deface that room. That changes a lot. I remember even some hesitation. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah, go for it. That, that story marvelously illustrates the truth that lies at the heart of these two verses that we are looking at this morning. And, and, and that is this, that the future shapes the present. That our future shapes our present. The fact that that wall was coming down changed everything because I didn't care about it. They could, in fact, I was going to have them take hammers to it next. So go ahead and have some fun with graffiti in this case. The future shapes the present. We are picking things up midstream. You can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21 this morning. We're picking things up midstream, mid-argument. I want to remind you, Paul began chapter 3 by uh, telling the Philippians that he's going to remind them of something he's already told them, and it's no problem, he's happy to do that. And then he goes into this warning. Remember, he, he warns them about those 
those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, those people who put hope, uh, they, they put their confidence in, in the flesh, in specifically he addresses the issue of circumcision, that to be right with God, uh, you can't just trust Jesus, you also need to practice these Jewish boundary markers. And, and Paul will have none of that. Paul contends, he goes on to contend that, that he is found in Christ on the basis of faith in Jesus through whom he, he receives God's gift of righteousness. This is really important. If you're with us online or here today and you're not a Christian, let me be very clear. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's not about cleaning yourself up and making yourself acceptable to God. It's about recognizing your brokenness and your inability to do that. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they are spiritually bankrupt. We come to God with empty hands, empty pockets, nothing to give Him, simply knowing that we need His grace. We, we trust Jesus. We trust His death in our place. And we trust his gift of righteousness received by faith. And Paul says that he is found in Christ through that gift. And so he counts all the things that he used to value, his Jewish pedigree, his performance as a law-abiding Pharisee, zealous religiously, faultless with regard to the law, he says. He counts that all as garbage, rubbish, dung. For the surpassing worth of being found in Christ on the basis of righteousness that is a gift of God's grace. He talks about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, knowing Christ now, but also the fact that one day he will know Christ in all its fullness. Knowing Christ now means knowing the power of the resurrection, the same power that brought Christ back to life at work in our lives now. And he knows Christ now also in suffering for Christ. That in suffering for Christ on behalf or, or, or on, for the sake of the gospel, he is in fact being conformed into, into Christ's death. The, the, the Christian life is a life that is cruciform, shaped by the cross. So that's what it means to know Christ, to know Christ's power and to suffer like Christ. And then at that point in the argument of chapter 3 leading up to where we're turning, Paul employs the, the metaphor of a race. He, he says that he is forgetting what's behind, that he is straining every muscle he has forward, that he is seeking to run the race with his eye fixed on the goal, the prize, for, to which he's called heavenward, which is knowing Christ in all fullness, which lies in the future. But that that shapes his life. He is, he is running hard after Christ. He wants nothing else to distract him, nothing else to slow him down, nothing else to pull him backwards. In the passage we looked at two weeks ago, last time I was with you, Paul called the Philippian believers to follow his example as he pursues Christ. Not only his example, he said, but also the example of others who are living like he's living. Those whose minds are set on heavenly things, you could say. He contrasts, he says, he, he says, don't be like those whose minds are set on earthly things, those who are living as enemies of the cross. And I won't go into unpacking that again, but he says, don't live that way. Be warned about that life where your mind's set on earthly things. Follow my example. Follow the example of others who, like me, are pursuing Christ, who are pursuing the heavenly prize of knowing Christ in all its fullness that lies yet in the future. Though we know him now, one day we will know him fully. Our passage picks, picks things up exactly at that point 
And these two verses provide the basis for all that Paul has been arguing in this chapter. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Let me read it again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I want to walk through this, these two verses and ask four questions with you. First, uh, where do we belong? Where do we belong? Second question, who do we await? Third, what will he do? And fourth, how should we respond? Where do we belong? Who do we await? What will he do? And how should we respond? Question one, where do we belong? Paul begins with these simple words, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now, I don't know about all of you, but I would imagine that some of you have thought a great deal more about citizenship than some others, like myself. I was born in Canada. Uh, I've always been a Canadian. Uh, I applied for a passport. I've renewed that numerous times. Uh, I'm a Canadian. I've never given a lot of thought to my citizenship. I'm just Canadian. But some of you were not born here. Some of you were born in other countries. And you made a choice to leave those countries where you're from and to come here. And so uh, some of you even have applied for and become citizens of Canada. But that was very intentional for you. For me, it just happened. Those of you who became citizens, you had to jump through various hoops in that process. You completed an application. No doubt there was an application fee that went along with that to our government. You had to demonstrate your proficiency in at least one of our official languages, English or French. You had to learn and, and prove in an oral or written test uh, a certain amount of uh, Canadian knowledge, that is Canadian history, Canadian geography, Canadian politics, uh, the rights and obligations of Canadian citizens. Quite frankly, probably many of us Canadians couldn't pass that test, but you did. And after jumping through all those hoops, you became a citizen of Canada. Now you belong here. You're Canadian. You, you can apply for, or already have perhaps, a Canadian passport. You belong. You are Canadian. Now, the matter of citizenship was significant for these believers in Philippi, for the original uh, hearers of this letter. Uh, I, I shared this early on in the message. Let me remind you a little bit of the history of the city of Philippi. Uh, about 100 years before Paul writes this letter, in 42 BC, there was a great military battle just west of the city. It was between uh, Cassius and Brutus, who assassinated Julius Caesar, and Octavian and Mark Antony. Uh, Octavian and Mark Antony won that battle. Octavian would eventually become emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. And when he won this battle, he honored this city by refounding it, and he did two things. He refounded it and he gifted all the residents of Philippi with Roman citizenship. He made them all Roman citizens. 
And then secondly, he settled retiring Roman soldiers into this city. So men who had fought and bled for the empire were, were settled here. And, and so the city of Philippi is a city that it was incredibly pro-Rome, loyal to Rome. They were Roman citizens and proud of it. That, that was, that's just one of the things we need to understand about this city and, and the Philippians. It, it's, it's who they were. They belonged to Rome. They were a colony of Rome, out, this outpost of Rome in Macedonia. Any talk of citizenship, the, the, the mere mention of that word by Paul, would have reflexively triggered thoughts for the Philippian believers of their Roman citizenship. They were Philippians, and thus they were Romans. But here Paul says to them, but our citizenship is in heaven. Now some of you might still be, some of you who have become Canadian citizens, you, you might still be citizen, a citizen of your home country. Perhaps you are a dual citizen. Some of you may be aware of, of the, the news story that came out during this most recent Winter Olympics a young woman named Eileen Gu, born in San Francisco, an American father, a Chinese mother. She chose to compete in the Olympics for China. That didn't sit well for some people. It's in the news. Right? Her loyalty went to China instead of America. For someone like Eileen Gu, uh, uh, who was a citizen of, of two countries, a decision had to be made. Her, her her loyalty, her allegiance to one or the other had to take precedence. That's an important thing for us to realize. Paul here is, is not calling the Philippians to renounce their Roman citizenship, but he, he, he himself was a citizen of Rome. But Paul was contending that their ultimate citizenship was heaven. Their ultimate allegiance needed to be to, to heaven, to God, to the fact that they were part of the people of God. And notice this, for Paul, in Paul's understanding, heaven is not merely some future reality. This is how we far too often think. We, th we think, oh, I'll put my faith in Jesus, I'll be saved, and then someday when I die, I don't have to worry, I'll be good then. But see, heaven is more than that for Paul. The reality of heaven is a reality that impacts the present. He said, we are now, we are citizens of heaven. We belong to a, a, a colony of heaven on earth. The future has broken into the present in Jesus. We belong to another place. We belong to another people. We belong to another order. And that reality needs to shape our lives now in the present as we live our lives out for Jesus. So they live now in Philippi as a colony of heaven. That's what the church is. We are a colony of heaven in Mill Woods, in Edmonton, in Alberta, wherever you're from. We are a colony of heaven, citizens of heaven through Christ. And we live out that allegiance, that reality, in the midst of these lesser realities, like being Canadian. Second question, who do we await Paul goes on and he says, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has just asserted that the Philippians are citizens of heaven. Now he asserts that they are awaiting a Savior from heaven, Jesus Christ. They are waiting for Jesus, the one who humbled himself and put on flesh, who became human. 
The one who lowered himself, becoming a slave, even to the point of death on a cross. The one who suffered the penalty that you and I deserve because of our rebellion and our sin. The one who was raised, the one who, who obeyed the Father, his Father perfectly, whose righteousness we receive. The one who, who died and was buried and on the third day was resurrected. We're going to celebrate those events this coming week. Jesus died, buried, resurrected, and ascended to his Father's side in heaven. Paul says we await him. We eagerly await him coming. Remember in the books of, book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, uh, Jesus has just told his disciples that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And, and then we read this. After this, he said, sorry, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken, taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That, that is the promise that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus will return, that the one who died in our place, the one who whose righteousness we receive, the one who came out of the grave, ascended to heaven, that he is coming back. I remember when I was a kid growing up in the church, there was a whole lot more talk about the return of Christ than we tend to hear in the church today. I sometimes wonder why that is. Do you, do you know that, that almost every single New Testament book speaks about Christ returning? except for Galatians and a couple small ones like Philemon and I think 2nd and 3rd John. There are, there's reference after reference after reference to the fact that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is returning. The one who went to heaven will come back from heaven. Paul says, we eagerly await a Savior from heaven. We're waiting for Jesus. Is that true for you and me? Do we await Jesus? Do we eagerly wait for his return? Third question, what will he do? When Jesus, our Savior, returns from heaven, what will he do? And our text answers that with uh, two parts to the answer. Let me read again. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Two parts. Let's look at what Paul says first. He speaks of Jesus is having the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. When Jesus, our Savior, comes from heaven, he comes in power. He comes with power to bring everything under his control. Do we understand that? Do, do we grasp the magnitude of that? Everything. Everything under his control. Think, think about what Paul is saying and to whom he's saying it. Remember, he's writing to the Philippians, this, this group of Christians, this group of followers of Jesus who live in Philippi, this colony of Rome, this outpost of Rome in, in Macedonia. And they are beginning, we know one of the two major things, right? There's some internal strife in the church. And secondly, there is opposition. There is suffering that they are beginning to experience. We, we don't know to what degree yet, but they are beginning to suffer. That's been clear through the letter. 
because there's opposition, almost certainly related to their citizenship in heaven. You see, the, the, the term Savior was a common title given to Caesar, to the emperor. Caesar is a Savior. That, that was common language. That's how the people of Philippi spoke. That's how the Philippian believers would have spoken prior to coming to Christ. But now that they have come to faith in Jesus, they've realized, you know what? Caesar is not Savior. There's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And so they no longer participate in every civic uh, event, every time they gather with their fellow Philippians, and the Philippians say, Caesar is Savior, and the Philippian believers don't participate because they know there's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus. And so they are suffering. They are facing opposition, persecution, and they are suffering. But Paul says that when Jesus returns, he'll come with power that will enable him to bring all things, everything, under his control. Jesus will subject every authority, every person, everything will be under his control. Jesus will subject even the emperor, all those who are responsible right now for the Philippians' suffering, will be under the control of King Jesus. Everything will be under his control. Gordon Fee writes this, this passage reminds us that despite appearances, often to the contrary, God is in control, that our salvation is not just for today, but forever, that Christ is coming again, and that at his coming, we inherit the final glory that belongs to Christ alone. And to those who are his, it means the final subjugation of all the powers to him, as well as especially those responsible for the present affliction of God's people. Those responsible for the Philippians' suffering will be subjugated to King Jesus. Jesus will come with power that will enable him, and everything will be under his control. I don't know about you, but we can look around what's going on in our world. We can look around what's going on in our country and fret. We can get angry. I know I've had to confess that to Jesus over these last weeks. He's convicted me of my anger at some of what I see going on politically in Canada. I, I, I see our government aggressively advocating for the, the killing of unborn helpless babies. Not only in Canada, but globally. I, I see our government opening the doors wider and wider and wider to euthanasia not just for people who are, are going to die soon, but for people who are emotionally struggling, devaluing life, life that God has given. I see a government who is promoting a, a radical gender ideology that will ruin countless lives, that, that opposes biblical sexual ethics and, and makes the advocating for those criminal. I see these things, and, and I'll be honest, I have gotten very angry. I've prayed some furious prayers. I'm glad you weren't there to hear them. But, but I have been convicted, not that, not that my perspective on those issues is a problem, but my attitude towards those in authority has been. Christ calls us actually to pray for those in authority. And I don't need to worry and fret and be angry because Jesus is coming, and I am to eagerly await him, and when he comes, he comes with power that will enable him to subjugate everything, bring everything under his control. 
The second part of the answer is that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Jesus' resurrection is often referred to as the first fruits. What does first fruits mean? It it means what it says. It, it, It means it's just the beginning, that more fruit's coming. First fruits is the first apple on the tree, the first grapes on the vine. But, but not the only grapes, not the only apple. There's going to be more fruit. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee that you and I, through our faith in Jesus, that we will be resurrected, that even death will not get the last word. Jesus, when he comes, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And those who have have died beforehand will be resurrected and given glorious new bodies. Bodies that will not wear out. Bodies that will not break down. Bodies that will not grow weak. Bodies that will not die. Death, the final enemy, will be defeated. Our earthly bodies, the bodies you and I have now, young people, students, You might have a hard time imagining this, but as you get older, your bodies will start to break down. You'll start to feel aches and pains. Things won't work the way they're supposed to. Our bodies will not last, and each one of us will, unless Christ comes first, will someday breathe our last breath, and our earthly body will be placed in a box. But that's not the end of the story. When Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. And those who have died in Christ will be resurrected with glorious, imperishable bodies. Now, we we don't know all that that means, but, but it means that the things that are broken about our bodies now will no longer be broken. Now, Jesus came back with this glorious, imperishable, heavenly body. It, it still bore scars from his crucifixion, so I don't know exactly what that means. Some of you know I have crooked fingers. I can't straighten them. Maybe I'll still have crooked fingers, but they won't hurt anymore. Our broken bodies will be transformed into heavenly, glorious bodies, bodies that will not break down, bodies that will not die. So in the context for the Philippians, Paul is saying no matter what you face from your opponents, no matter what suffering you are going through, no matter what pain is inflicted on your body, no matter even if they kill you, they cannot hurt you. Because when Christ comes, he will give you a body that will be like his glorious body. And remember Paul's words from earlier in this letter when he said, for to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. He says, if if I live, I live for Christ. If I die, I get to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul's eyes are fixed on Christ. Paul's eyes are fixed on the prize to which he is called heavenward, that is knowing Christ in all fullness, when sin and death will be defeated and all things will once and finally be set right. Fourth question, how should we respond? Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. is attributed with this quote, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. In 1977, album by uh, Johnny Cash, his album The Rambler, he had a song called No Earthly Good in which he expressed the same sentiment. 
Some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. But I want to ask you this morning, is that true? Is it even possible to be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good? Because I would contend that it's exactly the opposite. It's when our minds are fixed on heaven, when our minds are fixed on what Christ has called us to, when we are running this race, straining with everything we've got, forgetting what is behind, with our eyes fixed on that goal, that we actually become most earthly good. If you look through the history of the church, it is those believers who have trusted Jesus and have, have had their eyes fixed on Christ and fixed on heaven who have done the most good. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. In the passage we looked at two weeks ago, Paul warned them about following the example of those who set their minds on earthly things. And remember, that, that doesn't mean that we don't think about earthly things. We need to think about how do we provide for ourselves, for our family, where will we live. But there's a, a huge difference between thinking about those things and setting your mind upon those things. Over and over and over again, we are urged in the Scriptures to fix our eyes on Christ, to fix our eyes on the heavenly goal to which we're called knowing Christ in all its fullness. Uh, the future that is already broken into the present, that is already ours in Christ. Paul has said already, now, right now, the Philippians are citizens of heaven. That in Christ the future is broken into the present. That our Savior is coming. That we are eagerly awaiting. And when He comes, everything will be brought under His control. And He will transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies like His. You know what this means? As we think about how do we respond, it means that there is a certain recklessness with which we can live our lives for Jesus. On mission for Jesus. We, we can give ourselves fully to Christ, fully to the mission that he's called us to. We, we can trust in him no matter what we encounter. We, we can forget what's behind and press on towards the goal of knowing Christ, straining with everything we've got for Jesus, for his kingdom, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like practically to be heavenly minded, to have our minds set on heaven? It means that in everything, our allegiance is to Christ, that, that a life lived for Christ takes precedence over everything else, that, that we're not dual citizens where, you know what, right now it's for earth. No, 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 no. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our sure future shapes the present. Remember the kids drawing on the wall? Our sure future shapes the present. We live now in light of the future. We live now with an eternal perspective. We live out our faith with courage and boldness and intentionality. And so it means this. Students, when you consider the education you should pursue, you need to ask, how can I best prepare myself for the life to which Jesus is calling me? To live for Him. When I consider, or if you consider getting married... If you consider that, your first goal is, is not simply finding a romantic partner for life, but rather finding a partner who will run with you as you pursue the goal. That you are in this race together. That, that 
when you consider what house to buy or where to send your children to school or, or whatever decision you have to make, that you have an eternal perspective, that your mind is not set on earthly things, and you're inviting Jesus to show you how best you can pour out your life in the pursuit of him and in the pursuit of his kingdom, his will on earth as it is in heaven. It is about my citizenship in heaven that shapes every decision that I am to make. That's the goal. We're going to fail. We're going to have to repent and turn back to this. But Paul says this, this sure future that is ours in Christ is what shapes the present. The the future shapes the present. Your future shapes your present. Brothers and sisters, we are citizens of heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. One who will come and he will bring everything under his control. And he will transform our lowly bodies into bodies that are glorious like his. It was many years ago when my kids were writing and drawing all over the wall in my home. It was all good because the wall was coming down. The present, the future was shaped by the present. The future determined, sorry, the future shaped the present. The future determines the present. Our lives as followers of Jesus right now, our lives as disciples of Jesus today, are shaped, are to be shaped profoundly, wholly, by the future that is sure and that awaits us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this word Thank you for this challenge. I pray, Jesus, that you would fill us with your spirit. That you would shape us to be men and women who would have our eyes fixed on you. Lord, that we would be so heavenly minded that we would be profoundly used by you on this earth for your purposes, for your glory. And Lord Jesus, for our joy. Amen.